Welcome to VLGA Connect. My name is Catherine Arndt and I'm the Chief of the VLGA Connect Studio. I hope you enjoy today's Connect episode brought to you by the VLGA, the national broadcaster on all things local government. Hi everyone and welcome to VLGA Connect and it's TGU time and I've got the full team with us today. When you're on a good thing, stick to it, they say. Tony Rannick is joining me from Hunt and Hunt Lawyers who also sponsor TGU with VLGA Connect. Good morning, Tony. Hey, Chris. How are you going? I'm very well, thank you. And hello to Julie Reed from Julie A. Reed and Associates joining us for another chat on TGU. Hi, Julie. Hi, Chris. Hi, Tony. Great to see you both again. And you. And uh, Julie, what's your week been like? Have you had a bit oh. of time off? Yeah, look, I've had a had a nice time over the new year and now it's getting busy. So busy That's leading into hear. February. So it's like everybody's woken up again and everybody's got lots of work on their plate. Well, it's an interesting week too with the uh, the public holiday yesterday and the the various Australia Day or citizenship ceremonies or morning ceremonies. It's it, We're really going in some different directions, I notice, around the sector. Tony, uh, how have you found that this week? Yeah, yeah. Look, I think we're, we're, we're moving towards some consensus on this. I, I, I think that's pretty imminent. I think it's a it's a national conversation that we're we're having, and um, and I think um, probably this year also with the referendum, we're we're probably likely to come to um, some consensus. I think um, federally at least on um, how we celebrate Australia Day, what day do we celebrate it on, and hopefully um, we can um, sort of as a community um, sort of um, all agree on a day and agree on a, on 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 a way that we can do this that's that's inclusive and recognize the first nations people but also you know our 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 proud history since um as well was very disappointing to see uh Marybeck's uh, morning ceremony interrupted by what what the mayor described as uh, racist extremists yesterday we don't like to see that absolutely and and we condemn any any sort of um protests like that with racist um overtones to it um and i think yeah it's it, it's a debate that we we have to have as a country and I, but i do think that we're we're moving towards a consensus and i'm hoping that you know um Perhaps 2024 might be the year that we 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 celebrate it in a way that um, is um, is more inclusive and yep. and and there's there's a sort of a consensus across the country in terms of how that's done and when. Uh, let's hope so. And kudos to Angelica Panopoulos, the mayor at Marybeck, for saying uh, that incident just furthered the council's resolve to work towards treaty and reconciliation. Okay, let's get into some of the other news of the week. We've got some big stories doing the rounds this week, uh, folks. The uh, the Minister for Local Government has announced that she will install two municipal monitors at the city of Greater Geelong to oversee the recruitment process for a new CEO. Now, I understand that process was well advanced, but the Chief Municipal Inspector has been looking into uh, issues at that council and has recommended to the minister that some oversight be brought in for that process, which sounds to me, Tony, I'll come to you first, like perhaps uh, it's a stop and restart of the process. Is that the way you're reading it? Well, well certainly um, it sounds like the inspectorate sees a need for um, some additional monitoring in terms of, you know, um, integrity in that process, we don't really know 
what um, information's come to hand to them or what what concerns might have been raised with them. But mm. certainly um, it's prompted them to, to step in with the two monitors. Um, and that's a process I think that's been underway in terms of um, looking for a, a replacement CEO for Martin Cutter since, you know, October or so last year. So it's yeah, um, that's right. well progressed. And there's been an acting in there uh, for some time. Uh, Julie, I notice in the, and I know uh, media statements out of uh, state government are uh, very carefully worded uh, for, for for obvious reasons. Uh, the minister said in that uh, statement that the monitors will support the hiring process of a new CEO and during their term will work to ensure the council delivers good governance. Now, we don't have the terms yet, but does that suggest to you that the period that the monitors might be in place will be uh, longer than just for the appointment of the CEO? That's the way I read it, Chris. I think that, you know, potentially they could be looking at an appointment. Um, look, sometimes they start at sort of three months or six months, um, but there's obviously some fundamental governance issues there that have been identified. Um, and I think that what they're proposing is to help them get through this process uh, and make sure that it settles in after that and that good governance is um, is conducted at the council. So, yeah, look, it'll be interesting to watch that one and um, look good on the local government inspectorate for getting in there quickly and making sure that uh, that that things um, in terms of this process run smoothly and are, um, are credible as well. Yeah. Really, really important process for the council to go through. A lot of interest in that one. It's the most visited page on the local government news roundup website this week. Uh, I notice, and we'll we'll keep an eye on that as more information comes to hand. Uh, we'll pass it on. Details on the appointment and the terms of reference uh, yet to be announced as of uh, recording this. And another one that caught our eye this week is the outcome of an an arbiter's uh, process at Glenelgshire. This relates to comments made on social media by uh, the then deputy mayor. Uh, and some of those comments were linked to another councillor, Councillor Gilbert Wilson, who brought the complaint. And the outcome of this is interesting. Uh, the now mayor uh, is required to apologise uh, and has, I'll, I'll come to some comments made uh, in the media just in a moment, but this is interesting on a, on a number of fronts, Tony, around robust political debate, um, uh, interpretation of standards of conduct. What jumped out at you here? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I thought it was really um, a helpful decision in a sense because um, perhaps, perhaps if, if we look at the language that was complained about, which, as you say, was was posted on a social media page, it was the, the language used was, it is disappointing to see all councillors didn't take the opportunity to provide a clear voice to ratepayers on how the rate system works. Although I wasn't surprised as one councillor has been rocking up to meetings in a bathrobe of late. And it's really that, I think, that second part of the statement that's, that the um, arbiter Louise Hill identified as, as problematic. Um, she certainly made the point that, um, you know, commentary about a council decision that had been made is um, would be you know, reasonable for councillors. She talked about robust debate as being that contest of ideas, options, and the impact of council decisions. But seemingly where um, we saw a breach of the standards of behaviour here um, resulting in misconduct was 
the highly personal statement about you know a councillor attending a meeting in a bathrobe. Um, the arbiter made the point that this was without any any context to it. Um, it, it you know it, it might appear to the reader that um, that um, it happened multiple times. There was no defining whether this was a, a virtual meeting or a meeting in person. Yeah. Um, and and in fact, apparently, what occurred was that um, a, a councillor was ill on one occasion. Um, there was a virtual meeting, a confidential meeting, so we didn't have members of the public attending. The councillor's internet wasn't working too well in the house and went out into the back shed and where it was quite cold and, and had, had a gown to, um, to, to be a bit warmer given that they were ill. So all those elements of context weren't there. So, um, you know, the, the, the statement was really, as the arbiter said, perhaps designed to belittle or humiliate. Um, yeah. The councillor, and accordingly, um, was found to be misconduct, and um, and and that there ought be an apology. And I suppose the reminder for councillors is, you know, the, there's a crossing of that line when it comes to a personal attack um, that's designed to belittle versus um, robust debate, um, can, the contest of ideas, um, a discussion about, you know, whether decisions are appropriate or not that there's nothing wrong with that but when we cross into the personal it's likely to breach the standards of behavior yeah uh, julie the the arbiter louise hill makes an interesting comment about the use of this process for a matter of this nature because to the outsider looking in it, it, it probably looks a bit uh, petty doesn't it um what did you take from that comment by the arbiter yeah chris um a very very clear message at the end of the report and that was you know, saying, look, it's regrettable that the councillors have actually used the arbitration process to uh, to try and resolve what was a personal attack. You know, I think she was suggesting that maybe these things need to be resolved between the councillors and potentially that councillor could have, you know, um, given an apology and it would have been all over. But instead, there was a massive, you know, process they had to go through, which was time consuming and probably not very cost effective. And so, you know, it's regrettable that, mm. that they're using the arbitration process for what could be a simple apology early on from a councillor that might show dignity and respect towards mm. that councillor. And that's really what it's all about. It's about demonstrating that dignity and respect from what's required under the code of conduct. Did you find it helpful? The and I'm and I'm interested in Tony's view on this as well. Um, the comments about um, what robust political debate should actually constitute. Mm. I'm not sure I've seen it expressed as concisely as this in the past. So I'm wondering whether you think it hits the mark, both of you, Julie, first? Yeah, I think so, Chris. This is the first time I've seen it spelt out so mm. specifically. So she says. Uh, the, the 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 looking at the ideas and contesting the ideas is fine. Looking at the impact of council decisions, that's all fine um, as part of the debate. But don't move into that personal attack, as Tony said. That's when you step over the line. So 
discuss the ideas, debate the ideas, debate the options, debate the impact on council, but leave it away. Don't get involved in the personal issues. Mm. Tony, what sort of weight does does a decision like this carry in terms of, uh, precedent's probably not the the right word, but in terms of understanding this going forward for council? Yeah, we certainly do um, when we go to, um, you know, arbiter matters or even um, councillor conduct panels for serious misconduct, we'll, we'll, we'll look at the published decisions and, and, and look for guidance there. Um, so I think I think it, it does build that sort of bank of, of knowledge for people. Um, um, everything turns on its facts. I think um, um, I think the arbiter made a comment here too that, um, you know, the, the, the Facebook commentary was about something that had already been decided by the council. So maybe it would have been more appropriate if it had been about, you know, an, a live um, issue that was, um, you know, yet to be decided. And, and, you know, we were talking about the contest of ideas at the time, mm. um, rather than maybe having a dig um, post um, a decision. But, um, you know, I think that, you know, the lasting um, impression from this decision for councillors is avoid the personal. Um, you know, you don't need to go there um, to make your point. And if you do, there's a strong likelihood that you, you'll be um, breaching the standards of behaviour. Um, and also, you know, when 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 comments are made, you know, gi- gi- give the full context. Mm. Um, you know, it, we can all be a bit smart about, you know, the, the language that was used there to me um, didn't really convey the true picture of what had occurred. And I think that seems to have come through in the arbiter's decision as well in, in terms of her criticism of um, the approach taken by um, the councillor who, yeah. who used the, the social media here. Question without notice, um, and I'm, I'm mindful, I've, I've recorded an interview which will come out next week with Karen Ellis at South Gippsland Shire about the municipal monitors report there and the learnings from that for the sector. Um, cases like this and decisions like this, is enough made, is enough use made of these in induction and training sort of processes for, for councillors, uh, particularly mindful there's, you know, another round of elections less than two years away. Is this sort of thing helpful to try and build that body of knowledge about how councillors should behave within the context of their roles and responsibilities? You know, it's it, it's it's a difficult thing because I've pondered this myself um, in terms of training councillors because, you know, a decision like this might be useful to make that point we just made about personal um, attacks. Mm. There are there are many decisions, of course, though, that um, that really, you know, there's behaviours that, that demonstrate behaviours that we probably wouldn't like to see repeated. But ultimately, the decision was it wasn't serious misconduct it wasn't misconduct or it wasn't bullying depending on what the allegation was at the time and so you know um um the the um merely a finding that um behavior didn't amount to misconduct or didn't amount to serious misconduct might not mean that that's the sort of behavior that we'd want to see replicated and um there's you mentioned you know there's been decisions you know stonington for example last year where you know, behaviours that I think were, were generally agreed as being inappropriate um, 
was still did still not did did not amount to serious misconduct according yeah. to the decision. So there's the challenge in um in 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 you know using decisions as as, as the only reference point. I think what it does do, Chris, though, is that it it steers local government into understanding where are the pinch points and where are the key themes of which might need to be addressed in training. So, for example, we know that there's been a couple of um, arbitration reports now that have come out that link to social media. Hmm. So that tells us that there's a real need to... um, to make sure that counsellors are trained in the use of social media, which I think a lot of them are, but I think it's about um, the use of social media and this is 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 a bit dynamite and we need to think about, well, how, how can they understand, um, the, you know, the use of those tools and how, it, mm. how, you know, public they are. And, I mean, I know they know that, but I, it's just about, well, do they need some training in that space? is a question. So I think there could be some trends and that could come out of some of these arbitration decisions that might lead to some changes in the in the training. One more thing before we get off this Tony I noticed uh, the ABC picked up on this story and reported on it uh, earlier in the week and spoke to uh, councillor Martin the mayor who's required to make the apology. Um I note that he told the ABC that he still stands by his comments but will respect and comply with the arbiter's decisions. Any concerns about that stance? Yeah, well, we, we'd certainly, um, the apology itself, and there's a direction to make an apology, um, that would need to be a sincere apology and um, not sort of um, fettered by sort of language that suggests that it's um, it, it's, it's um, limited or, or, or not sincere. So, um I haven't yet seen the apology that will issue, and no doubt the council will be mindful of the need to to make a, a genuine apology. Um, mm. Or there's a risk that um, there's a further offence committed there if you're not complying with um, the decision of um, the arbiter, and that could lead to a sort of a gross misconduct finding ultimately. There's some free advice from the one lawyer on the panel. <laughs> All right. Uh, Tony, I know another ABC story caught your eye, the depths that some of these journalists have to go to to get uh, material these days. There's a story there about uh, media policies and concerns being raised by some ratepayer groups. Oh, I, I did see see that. And um, of course, who who do the journalists go to in, in the sector who's the a leading light um, um, doyen in the sector, but none other than Chris Eddy, who was... Um, asked to comment, but I, I really, um, you know, a common um, theme often you hear amongst um, ratepayer advocates, ratepayer groups, it, it, a concern about, um, you know, the impact of council media policies and, and the tension between um, the Local Government Act provisions, which the um, which state that, you know, the, the mayor is, is the key spokesperson for the council, Versus, you know, the, the um, democracy, the right of free speech, and um, and and not wanting to prevent um, other councillors being able to make make comment where where that's fair and reasonable. Um, the the view of um, at least one of the ratepayer groups that was quoted in the decision was that uh, was quoted in the articles. Big part of was that um, you know there might be some 
um, impact on free speech. Um, I think it turns on how the policies um, are written in each um, council and then how they're actually used. Um, I think that um, we understand why it's 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 a good thing to have um, a consistent spokesperson. Um, the mayor has that position. Um, the mayor often has access to more media training and, and, and such. Um, but, but, you know, I wouldn't ever agree with a policy that said no other, no councillor could exercise a right to speak to the media, to comment on social media. It's, it's, it would be important that that councillor, um, you know, prefaces their, their language by saying, you know, I'm speaking on my own behalf here, not as a spokesperson for the council. I think good, good mayors too, what they tend to do is share the good news around and don't yeah. dominate the, um, the, 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 the conversation. You know, if there's a, a, a capital works project to be open, they invite other councillors and involve the ward sure. councillor and other councillors who might have been integral to, to the outcome. Um, so there is that tension there. And, and I think that um, it's a constant theme at, at, at councils. Yeah, you would have seen this in your time, uh, Julie. It, it takes, I think, a certain set of skills and capabilities at the CEO level to navigate and keep this on an even keel too, doesn't it? Correct. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting and, and making sure that the messages are really clear and it's really professional and it shows um, the, the councils in a positive light. Uh, whenever you know responding in the media setting so you know to make sure that that the councillor or the the councillors or the mayor has had training is really critical to understand you know how to get that message across so yeah look it's mm. um, it's it's a tricky space and um, but there are some really good mayors that do a great job in getting messages across and sharing that around and that's going to become even more important as we move towards the next election cycle. And I did make the point in the story. Look, um, councillors will find a way to get their their time in the sun. If the system's not allowing it, my experience is they'll find other ways to get out there and promote themselves. And sometimes that's going to run up against whatever policy might exist uh, within a council. And then you start to have those tensions grow even uh, even further. Tony, councils aren't required to have a media policy, are they? No, no. It, 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 but it's, it's it's a good it's a good idea, yeah. and, and certainly, um, I think not to have one is 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 really a recipe for 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 conflict and and misunderstandings. Mm. Um, it's it, you know, clearly we want to have um, a single point spokesperson and not confuse the community and there's a benefit in nominating the mayor and sometimes it's a CEO for example during an election period who's a spokesperson for council um, but you know we, we live in a democracy people are going, going to want to get their messages across and and they're going to be um, contacted directly by the media anyway um, as um, as I've heard, heard, heard you say in the past Chris, you know, often councillors will be will say, "Well, you know, I didn't go to the media; they they contacted me," and and uh, that's yes. often the excuse. And um, and and I think councillors need to be given some guidance in terms of being able to, um, you know, state 
where they stand on an issue if they think that's important without um without you know undermining what is what is the 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 policy of the council or what is the the message that's come out from the the key spokesperson for the council well we've had some meaty topics there and there's we're not even halfway through my list so we might just whip through some of the news of the week get any comments if there are relevant comments to make um last week we we reported how uh, Victoria's first openly transgender person has been elected at Colac Otway in a countback there. Uh, this week, news that another councillor at Colac Otway has resigned due to uh, growth in work commitments outside of the Shire. That's uh, Jamie Bell, who is uh, stepping down. So there'll be a second countback in uh, as many months, probably, uh, at Colac Otway. So uh, we'll keep an eye on that. No details yet on the countback. And uh, folks, we've had three countback results this week. So at uh, Brimbank, Thomas O'Reilly. I don't think the same Tom O'Reilly who used to be the CEO at Ganawara. Uh, <laughs> so Tom, Thomas O'Reilly is uh, taking the spot of Trung Lu, who was elected to the parliament. Melissa Cadwell at Greater Geelong taking the spot of Sarah Mansfield, who was elected to the parliament. And Justine Faruja at Melton has come in to the spot that was held by Moira Deeming, who was elected to the parliament. I think we've got one more, well, two more now with Colac Otway countbacks and a by-election at Mornington Peninsula still to come. Any comments on those folks or we'll move through? Lots of inductions, lots of yes. um, trainings for, for new councillors. And um, as we spoke last week, um, uh, you know, a, an opportunity reset at some of those councils as well. Some CEO news. Uh, look out for an interview I've done with Karen Ellis at South Gippsland, as I mentioned earlier, on the final report from the municipal monitor there, which came out a week or so ago. Prue Digby was the monitor. She's given the council a very highly positive report card. You'll recall that this was the monitor that was put in place to guide the transition back from administration to elected councillors in uh, October of 2021, which was a year behind the other um uh, elections that occurred. And it seems, Julie, that this model, this proactive model, uh, particularly where councils have been under administration uh, to guide uh, councils back to good governance, uh, is working well. Yes, Chris. And I've always been a big fan of the proactive model. And because what it does, it gives both the CEO and the councillors that are new that extra piece of support uh, in that transition. Um, and it means that those behaviours and those values can be set really early on in the piece. And it seems as though South Gippsland have done a really good job in setting those up as a group to start off with. Mm. Um, and so just to have someone there to support them, make sure that everything's, um, you know, ticking along nicely. Um, and then at the end, you know, with no recommendations from the monitor, that's that's a fantastic outcome. Yes, no recommendations in terms of governance, but a key finding that I want to ask Tony about in terms of the induction process. You mentioned, Tony, new councillors in those countbacks, uh, induction really important. Prue Digby makes the point that the transition and induction plan here should be shared more broadly with the sector. And I do ask Karen about this as well, about the transferability of that to councils that aren't coming out of administration yeah I, I, it was really interesting the um the fact that it was a, a, a you know an intense induction program it wasn't just um you know the regulatory um, mandatory modules um with this was really focusing on you know councillors and spending lots of informal time together and facilitated time together to build 
relationships both between councillors, but between councillors also and the CEO, between councillors and the executive management team. And, and it was, you know, and it wasn't sort of completed, um, you know, early on when they were elected in November 21. It was a process that continued, um, you know, revisited in the middle of the year, regular um, sort of sessions throughout the last 12 months. Um, so, so yeah, I do think that that's um, that's the you know the 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 high standard you know that to 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 reach and um, and I, I but I also thought it'd be interesting for you to um, ask Karen Alice about this that um, it was interesting that Prue Digby still said you know despite all that that great um, relationship building process the council still experienced. Um, that tension with dealing with customer service requests coming mm. directly to councillors mm. and then how councillors would, would, you know, escalate them through to the executive, how the executive would deal with them. Initially, the sense that councillors had um, of, you know, um, there being, um, you know, too long a delay in dealing with these um, customer service requests and say by the same token that, you know, the council organization um sort of being distracted away from dealing with um you know the the priorities in the council plan diverting resources towards these customer service requests and what struck me is that um this is always going to be an issue for every council and it's something that councils need to you know revisit constantly and look at their protocols because there's that you know tension between the role of the councillor as you know representative of the community versus their strategic role and yes. um and you know for all of us in councils who are experiencing that tension at times um perhaps it's heartening to know it's always going to be there um and it's 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 um facing it and regularly dealing with it in in a in a collaborative way, you know, the executive, the CEO and the councillors working out how can we better manage that those customer service request processes because, you know, it, it, it is going to be an ongoing um, challenge. Yeah, good point. We didn't get into that too much in the interview, but I, I think I recall Prue using the, the phrase, uh, that distinction between working on the business as opposed to working in the business. And it is an important point. It's, it's sort of the uh, like that um, operational versus strategic getting in the weeds or staying above the weeds type uh, issue, isn't it, Julie? Yeah, exactly. And this is where it becomes very difficult for councillors to let go of wanting to be involved in the potholes and mm. and the responses and you know and 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 they it, it's easier for them to understand all of that sometimes. Um, mm because um, they get it. They see it on the ground. They understand that there needs to be, um, you know, a cleanup, et cetera, and they get frustrated when it doesn't get done it doesn't, or it doesn't get done to their satisfaction. So that's where the relationship, as we said, between the council and, and the executive team is really important and that they provide that feedback um, to the organisation to say, you know, we we want this to be um, dealt with quicker or better, 
and then there needs to be that conversation. And and I think the work, and Karen will make this point, uh, to, with the candidate pool to under, to help build that understanding of the role before they actually get elected um, and they shared their induction plan with nominated candidates so that they had some expectation of uh, the work they were going to uh, need to be doing, which I'm sure was a surprise uh, to some, if not uh, all of them. I think the important point in all of this is that the induction was went above and beyond the, the mandatory yes. induction requirement. Yeah. And I think that, you know, good on South Gippsland for doing that because it's now set a new standard for what should be looked at across the sector exactly. when we come to the next election. Spot on, Julie. I agree with you 100% there. Um, I, I am conscious of time. I do want to just make a, a, a couple of notes, and I know there's a story out of the UK, Julie, you want to touch on. Uh, firstly, uh, really pleased to see uh, former CEO David Turnbull, who passed away in March 2020, um, posthumously awarded an OAM this week in the Australia Day uh, Honours. Uh, David, of course, was 21 years as CEO and director at the city of Whittlesea, four years at Mitchellshire. I'm sure I'm, I'm sure we've all uh, on this panel had had dealings with David over the years. Uh, lovely man. And uh, very nice to see his legacy and commitment recognised in this way. Yeah, real, real um, doing that planning area, particularly um, mm. developer contributions, interface councils. Um, good guy, David. Um, keen bike rider too, something we both share. Is that right? Yeah, we uh, chewed some of the same sort of air up that mountain up to King Lake a couple of times. He was a keen bike rider. Good guy. He's uh, he's greatly missed. Uh, someone who uh, we were missing in the sector, but we don't need to miss any longer, is uh, Michael Tudbull, former CEO at Southern Grampians, was at Melton before that for a while, former mayor as well, going back some time. Uh, he's been installed as the interim CEO at Karangamite Shire uh, from next week with Andrew Mason leaving today, I assume, as, uh, as we record this. So welcome back, Tuddy. Yeah, it's great to see Michael come back to the sector. Um, I know he was missed from the sector and uh, I know he'll contribute a lot again as he did before. So great, great news for the sector. Thanks, Chris. He, he's uh, he's joining a growing list of people who've left the sector and gone to state government and seen the light uh, that's been shining them, um, pointing them back to local government. Um, present company included, Julie Reid. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> Uh, we need to wrap it up. So uh, you've got a story out of the UK we might finish on, uh, Julie, that caught your eye because you 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 rightly pointed out to me earlier that sometimes uh, Australia looks to the UK to try and uh, encourage people to come out and and, and work uh, to fill shortages, uh, but we perhaps shouldn't be looking that way. Yeah, well, Chris, I know that I've been speaking to quite a few local government people recently and they've been, you know, talking about what are some of the solutions for getting staff into some of these roles. And some have been saying, do we need to start um, thinking, rethinking about bringing people out from, say, the UK um, to fill some of those gaps, particularly planning gaps, building gaps, um, environmental health gaps that we are finding in Victoria uh, alone is just very significant. So the latest news from there is they've got significant staff shortages in the UK, and particularly in England. Um, the, there's been a 2022 workforce survey that's come out and uh, we can we can pop the link in the yep. yeah on the website for everybody, but there's risk there of having serious impact on councils' um, capability to deliver services. Uh, they're saying 
they've got a shortage of social workers, of planning officers, of building control people, environmental health officers. They've got major recruitment and retention issues. Um, they're running campaigns, they're doing flexible working and they're running apprenticeships and they're still finding it really difficult. They're mm. saying that the funding pressures for councils is a barrier as well. So um, they've got some real challenges over there. So uh, think again, CEOs and directors, if you're thinking about poaching them from the UK, it might be a little bit difficult. We might need to look elsewhere. So uh, yeah, not, not such good news, but interesting that they're in the same space when there's so many people over there. One of the numbers that jumped out at me from that survey, which was done by the local government association in the UK, is that over a over a period of I think it was about thirteen years, um, the local government staff headcount in England fell from two point two million to one point three million. Mm. Nearly half of that workforce has disappeared over thirteen years. That's that's a stark number, Tony. It, it, it is, and. Um interesting because you know my understanding is that um you know local government in the uk has a i think a stronger sort of um revenue base than 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 we do um victoria but um um not dissimilar experience um in terms of shortages of, of key staff and i guess the the opportunity for us here in victoria is to really look at what initiatives they use in, in the UK to try and um, overcome this and, and maybe we can um, steal some of their ideas um, uh, if they're good ones. All right, we've had a lot to talk about today. We're going to need to wrap this up, folks, uh, before we wear our welcome out. I wonder what lies ahead of us uh, in the next week. Uh, I'm sure one of you will be joining us next week, and I look forward to that. Tony, have a great week, and thank you. And thank you to Hunt and Hunt Lawyers for sponsoring the program. Delighted as always, and um, I think Julie and I are off to Borbore Shire next week, so that'll be fun. Well, you're getting around because you're going to Swan Hill as well, aren't you, uh, Julie? Yes, you're yes, covering... Swan Hill from. From Borwell one day to Swan Hill the next. Welcome never to the a, wonderful world of local government consulting. You. Yeah, it's never a dull moment. And it's fantastic <laughs> to work with uh, a variety of councils. I'm really, really enjoying that space. So thank you fantastic. for those uh, opportunities coming forward. Thanks, Julie. Always good to hear your perspective on things as well. And we'll look forward to having you all back for another TGU uh, next week from VLGA Connect. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already on YouTube or on your podcast player. You'll find us there under VLGA Connect, and we'll see you again with more very soon. Bye for now.